So that's the impetus for the book. It's a way to take the lessons learned from these people who, if you will, are on the high mount of success, looking back over the arc of their careers for the lessons that they felt were most helpful to get them to that moment. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, Taking Care of Business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 97. Shai and I will be talking with Michael Sonnenfeld. Michael is a regular contributor to media outlets such as CNBC, Fox News, Bloomberg TV, as well as a serial entrepreneur, founder of Tiger 21, which Forbes calls the wealthiest, most powerful social networking group in the world. And he is the author of the new book, Think Bigger, and 39 other winning strategies from successful entrepreneurs. Good morning, Michael. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're looking forward to our time with you today. Let's start out by looking at some of the events that led up to writing this book and why. Sure. So when an entrepreneur is lucky enough to sell a business in a very successful manner because they've been doing it for 10 or 20 or 30 years, something happens. There's a moment where they go one day from having 100 or 500 or 50 employees and the next day nobody's laughing at their jokes anymore. And the point is that this is from the outside looking in just an amazing moment of success. But for the actual entrepreneur that goes through that, they're going through a dramatic change. They're going from being an entrepreneur to perhaps being a wealth preserver. And they're going from being an active manager to a passive investor. And they're going from focusing everything they've been working on for 10 or 20 or 30 years to now having to become almost an academic where they invest in multiple things and have diversification so that it's a prudent portfolio. And there's a lot of emotional things they go through. And all of that is in this moment where everybody else thinks that they should be taking their victory lap. So I've been studying that moment for about 20 years with the help of about 900 of the most successful entrepreneurs across North America, 560 of whom still belong to this organization called Tiger 21. And we exist. So when that moment occurs and people come in, they can learn from other people who have been through that moment What's the best way to navigate that, particularly in times like today where the environment is so treacherous and it's so hard to invest capital after you've been building your business for so long? So that's the impetus for the book. It's a way to take the lessons learned from these people who, if you will, are on the high mount of success, looking back over the arc of their careers for the lessons that they felt were most helpful to get them to that moment. And Michael, if you had to think of maybe debunking some of the mythology around what an exit looks like, what are some of the typical things that you've found through your work in founding and growing Tiger 21 that show up? Sure. So I think the mythology or the dreams around a successful exit is that it's all wine and roses. And it turns out emotionally, it's much more complicated than that because great entrepreneurs got to be that way 
because they were in their groove. You know, if you remember how a record used to put the needle and you were in the groove and what brought an entrepreneur to such great success over a long period of time is they're in their groove. And then one day there is no groove anymore. They don't have the business that they've been building. So there's ways that people can prepare for that event, that if they have a little foresight, they can really make a difference. It's not just emotionally, but in terms of the way you structure the business and the tax posturing. And if you want to help avoid some estate taxes in a perfectly legal way, you might include your children as co-owners of the business early enough on so that when it sells, the portion that the children own avoid the estate tax. Or you might have charitable intent. A little less than 30 years ago when I sold my first business and I was really lucky enough to sell it in a certain way, I was able to set up a foundation that got the proceeds of some of the sale. And by being smart about that, the amount that ended up in the foundation was twice what I would have paid in those taxes. So I've been able to be more philanthropic than I might have otherwise have been if I hadn't set it up in a smart and tax efficient way. So thinking about what you want to do and thinking about what life after the big sale is with a little forethought can make a huge difference. Michael, many of the group members of Tiger 21 represent some high net worth first generation wealth creators, and these are risk takers. Most of this category sort of fail in the first 10 years. What's different about the ones that make it? There's no getting around the fact that entrepreneurs on average take risks and are comfortable with risks that most people aren't. The book and another way of thinking about it is a study of who's cut out to be an entrepreneur. What are the particular skills and personality types? And are these genetic or are they learned traits? And risk-taking is at the very core of starting a business. But you know, one of the things is that we don't really understand risk as well as we'd like to believe. And it really depends what type of risk you're talking about. So a risk that's very well known is the flip of a coin. We all know that there's lots of statistics that something as simple as a coin can be defined by a formula with great accuracy. But then if you start looking at securities as an investor, the way that risk is measured is the past volatility of the price of that public security. Well, while that's helpful in one context, it's kind of like driving through the rearview mirror. What is the past volatility of a stock have to do with a new competitor on the horizon that could imperil it. So if you look at Tesla as an example, Tesla has no competition for its early years, but in a year or two from now, every major car company is going to have competing electric vehicles. So if you're looking at Tesla's prospects by the risk backwards, they had no competition and forwards they do. And the point that I'm making is that The part that's most interesting for entrepreneurs is when do they have an edge? And the way I like to say it is if one of you guys and I were walking down the street and assuming radio is your passion and your base of knowledge, we see an old abandoned building. I've been in the real estate business my whole life. You've been in the radio business. And you look at that building in a bad side of town that's empty and dilapidated. And somebody says, hey, you want to buy that building? And you say, why would I do that? There's nothing to do with it. That's beyond repair. 
And I look at it and I say, oh, what an opportunity. If I could buy it cheap enough, I could put an incubator for new businesses in that could afford really cheap space. And if we're lucky, we can create some new businesses and some new tenants. And my point is the part that's missing from the risk discussion is that risk is in the eyes of the beholder in many aspects of business. So the real question is, are successful entrepreneurs just lucky? Meaning like the flip of a coin, some are winners and some are losers. Or when do entrepreneurs really have distinctive skills that allow them to see risk through a completely different lens? And I would argue, of course, not in every case. But in many of the cases of the members of Tiger 21, they managed luck. Luck comes to those who are prepared and willing to take the risk and have the knowledge what to do in the moment. And so I would propose that many of our members are as successful as they are because they have an edge and figured out how to deploy it. And that edge is kind of the groove I was talking about before. This brings up something in the book that was interesting to me is this clash between wisdom and education and when it balances and when it doesn't. Can you comment on that? Sure. I think that what you're referring to is a study done by a professor at Wharton or University of Pennsylvania, uh, Professor Duckworth. And basically what she came to understand is that when you look at successful entrepreneurs, grit beats intelligence almost every time. Now, of course, most entrepreneurs do have unusual amounts of intelligence. Not exclusively. There's a lot of luck and intelligence comes in lots of different flavors. But the overwhelming trait that made entrepreneurs distinctive was grit. This notion that you knock on a door and you get slammed in your face, you move to the next door. You're trying to go over a wall you can't get over it. You go to the left, you go to the right. You know, I was just talking at West Point two nights ago, and there are a lot of parallels between entrepreneurs and warriors who have this grit and desire to survive and ambition because it is tough out in the corporate world. I'm not saying that it's like being at battle. I don't want to diminish what soldiers face in the field. But this notion of grit is really important. It's this notion that as you're falling from one ladder, you're already jumping to the next and the next and the next, and you're constantly reaching for just beyond your grasp, and you have this kind of optimism that you can do it. And you know, another part of it that's related is the great entrepreneurs have failed. Failure is part of success. If I went to put somebody to lead an organization, if they had never experienced failure, they won't succeed. If they have experienced failure, they're likely to succeed because you can often learn much more from your failures than your successes. So I think it's really important to have the kind of personality that when you fail, you don't give up, but you see that as a learning experience that allows you to go to the next opportunity and bring the lessons learned. And similarly, the differentiation between smart money and wise mentors, I found that to be fascinating. Could you elaborate there? So first of all, I learned an amazing expression. We have one of our members, Ron Wiener, who has an expression that says, smart people fix mistakes, 
and wise people avoid them. I think it's really a great way to frame because sometimes you find people work so hard to fix mistakes, but who are the lucky few who can really avoid them to begin with? So that's one element of intelligence. But one of the things that wise people do is they seek out mentors in their careers. And the best way to think about it is if you separate any group of 100 people from almost any industry and you line them up from least successful to most successful, the half that are most successful will almost overwhelmingly have had mentors in their life. And the half that are least successful will overwhelmingly have excuses for why they didn't have mentors in their life. You know, in the famous Greek book, The Odyssey, the hero is Odysseus, and Odysseus has a son, Telemachus, and Odysseus goes out to fight the war, and he leaves his mentor in charge of the upbringing of his son, Telemachus, and that's where the term mentor comes from. There's lots of different types of mentors. One of the things that I found really interesting is When you think about the different types of mentors, there's different ways. Somebody who can give you the answers that you want is one way to think about it. Another is somebody who can share experience or be a guide. The one that I'm most interested in is the mentor who's a good listener. Because what I found in this book is creativity is one of the things that really drive many entrepreneurs, not all, but many. And how many times have you been in a shower and an idea came to you or you woke up in the middle of the night and an idea came to you? It's because your mind is in a very different state than when you're actively doing something. And whether you get to that state through a type of psychoanalysis or meditation or prayer, these are all different ways to get into your mind to let it free associate and come up with these ideas. Well, when a mentor can be a good listener, it can create an experience where you have those kind of creative insights. In fact, the best mentors, long after they're gone, are still playing their role. My mentor died eight years ago. We were partners for 30 years. And I can still have a conversation with him by saying, if I said this, I think David would have said this to me, or I still remember the deal of a lifetime comes across your desk every week. It's just a a whole philosophy. Or he would say, you know, you hire somebody for the good and the bad comes at no extra expense. And every time I would call him and I would need help, the first thing he would say is, how can I help? And that's so rewarding and so enriching and nurturing when you can have these mentor relationships. Great success comes from it. And the one course I never had at the Sloan School at MIT, where I got an MBA, I didn't have a course in mentoring. But if they did, that might have been the most important course that I could have taken. It's such a wonderful insight, Michael. And and I appreciate that very much. As you were talking, I was reflecting on the various mentors I've had throughout my life and how they still serve me very well. One of the things that I found really compelling was, you know, there's these different focus areas in your book and you talk about the stage of growing a business and the three focuses, the inner focus, other focus. Tell us more about that and how you came to that insight. Sure. There's a number of what I would call dilemmas that I've been pleasantly wrestling with. What I mean by dilemmas, there's things that might suggest one direction, but there's a tension that is another direction. Well, before I get to focus, I want to talk about creativity and curious. 
entrepreneurs are very often more curious and more creative than the average person. They have to be if they're going to be successful. But curiosity means sort of scanning all over the place and being open to things. And it's one of the reasons why there's such a high level of ADD and ADHD and other learning issues among great entrepreneurs, precisely because those types of behavior or brain patterns can mask great intelligence that won't flourish in a corporate setting. But if you can create your own environment, then those issues don't get in your way. And so on the one hand, very often, how many entrepreneurs were told by so many people, you're all over the place, focus. Okay, but when they finally get in that groove, they really start to focus. Now, I always thought it was like a singular focus, but Professor Rutgers named Gollum actually talks about three focuses, the outer, the inner, and the other. The inner focus is, you know, what we all know about, know thyself. Why am I doing this? What are the environment that I'm going to most flourish? What types of people will amplify my skill? What types of setting will be not good for me? Who am I? Why am I doing this? And what do I need to be successful? All of those issues are the know thyself or the inner focus. Then there's the other focus. That's the focus where when you're leading a team or an organization, you need to be really taking into account what's going on within your team. Does somebody have a sick child and that's why they're behaving the way they are? Or does somebody have a passion that you can unlock if you put them in a place where they can succeed in that area? And do two people not get along even though they're great and maybe you can find a way to separate them in a productive way or what might make a great team. So this other focus is scanning your team and making sure you know what the internal environment of your company is. And then there's the outer focus. What's the competitive environment? What's the landscape? What's coming up over the horizon that could impact on what would be successful? What are the technologies that could aid what we're doing and what are the technologies that could be competitive and put us out of business. And the really successful entrepreneurs have an unusual degree of really having all three of these foci in their sights at once. If they can't be sensitive to themselves, sensitive to their team and responding to the environment, they can't navigate the typical entrepreneurial business through the challenges that the lucky few have to do to get to this amazing success that the book chronicles. And when you think of your own experience, Michael, do you find these things to be an equal balance or do you feel that you can see in yourself, you know, I tend to be stronger on these areas and maybe I have to remind myself not to lose focus in others? So. I'd say that the beauty of life is none of them are ever in perfect balance, and each one of them is kind of tipping and falling off the rails, and if you're on top of your game, you're putting it back on and moving forward. So I would say it's very rare where I could honestly say all three were in perfect alignment at the same time, but if you're really working at your craft... And I happen to be a meditator, but there are other ways to kind of scan what's going on. The goal is to keep those three in parallel moving forward because you just can't succeed without them. 
And one of the reasons that we created Tiger 21 is by definition, people's blind spots are things that they can't see. But when you sit around a table with 12 to 15 peers, people who are more or less every bit as successful as you are, but having arrived through very different journeys of life, you get this amazing magic where when you can trust the people, everybody has signed confidentiality agreements and the best groups start to function as a high-performing team, then the person across the table can say something to you that you might not have been aware of. So I would say that successful entrepreneurs, and I've been lucky enough to feel like that a couple times in my life, more or less have these three things in balance, but at no one moment is it a perfect balance and you're constantly trying to push the one that's falling behind to catch up with the other one or two. Michael, in your interactions with your Tiger team and the wonderful people you get to work with on a continuous basis, how do you view our present economic and political environment as an effect on the growth of entrepreneurs going forward? It's very hard to relate macro and micro issues. I probably have lots of feelings about the macro environment, both political and economic. But one of the things that Tiger members have done is overwhelmingly voted with their dollars, so to speak, by allocating to private equity. So we have successful entrepreneurs who have sold their businesses and now are managing about $55 billion in assets. And we look at where it is that collectively that money is going. And the two largest categories are real estate and private equity. Real estate's about 33% of the portfolio and private equity is 21 or 22 and public is 20. And the point is when you add them all up, those are risk assets, it's still 73%. But the reason they're in private equity and they're in real estate is these are areas, one, they have an edge in, two, this is where their career was, and three, it's an area where they can roll up their shirt sleeves and touch and feel and see the actual asset. And I, I'm answering the question this way because we all have concerns about North Korea or whatever the turmoil in the White House might be or what the next major bill will be. And climate change, for, in my mind, is a very serious threat. But we have to put that in perspective with what do I do today? And if I can move the ball forward on my company, I'm going to stay focused and do that. So I think that keeping your eye on the ball is one way to address those in our political lives or our philanthropic lives. Many of us are trying to address the issues that I think you were referring to and trying to think about how will those impact? What's the horizon? That's the outer focus I was talking about. But for most small businesses that would characterize the kinds of success that Tiger 21 members built, keeping their eye on the ball and staying focused is almost more important than worrying about some of these other issues, even though they're critically important. Michael, I know that you've said that this book really starts from the moment an entrepreneur has a successful exit. Tell us what are the best lessons learned. Sure. You know, the overwhelming lesson that I have is most entrepreneurs, if they're lucky enough to have a really successful business and the exit is totally voluntary, that's different if you think your market is closing and you can get out while you can or you have a health problem. But 
but you actually are running a great business and somebody comes and offers to buy it and you have to decide whether to take it. Most people really can't look through the looking glass and really understand what life on the other side of a sale is about. And the area is really, I would call it financial and emotional. On the financial side, there's something called sticker shock. Because a typical small private business is sold at a six or seven or eight times multiple in the current environment, a seven times multiple means a 14% return. The two are the same way of looking at it. But when you sell assets that are earning a 14% return, pay taxes, and invest them in passive investments at 2% or 3%, your income actually goes down by 60, 70, or 80%. It doesn't matter how many zeros you had. If you sell a business for a million dollars or 10 million or 100 million, the amount of income in this environment that you can generate off of the proceeds is a very small fraction. Almost every really successful entrepreneur, except in some very rare instances, has a lot more money in the bank, but a lot less income. And the lot less income is the part that really wasn't thought about. So learning the skills becomes very challenging and it's very nerve wracking because you feel under great pressure to generate income that you can't reproduce that you had when you had your business. And we talk a lot about different investment strategies and different approaches to investing. And frankly, as I mentioned before, getting prepared for the sale to maximize the after-tax returns. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating is we live in an after-tax world, but we think in a pre-tax world, and people often make decisions based on pre-tax calculations when the after-tax calculations would be dramatically different. So there's a lot of financial implications of the sale, but the emotional ones are the ones that are even more interesting. Many people are selling because they realize if they don't find a way to spend more time with their children, they're going to be gone and never know them and their marriages are at risk. Or philanthropically, they have a calling to give back to the country or religiously, they want to get more involved. And that's the place where people get a chance to open up as individuals and learn from a community that they've joined to be part of. And we call that the transition or search from success to significance. It's the point where people are starting to think about legacy. If you touch people either in their legacy or their relations with their children or health, those are the three motivating things for most of our members after they've created enough wealth to allow them to have a successful exit. And I think that this phase change is just much more fundamental than most entrepreneurs are prepared for. And particularly so in this moment, we live in a low interest, even a zero interest rate environment. And what that means is that when you sell your business and you're investing in this environment, you have to take a lot more risk to generate any kind of return than you would have a generation ago. For those who remember long enough at the end of the Carter era and in the early years of Ronald Reagan, what he inherited from Carter, you could buy municipal bonds with 14% tax-free income. Today, that number is a half a percent or 1%. So the same dollars goes 1-14th as much. That really makes a difference. So navigating in these times is a real challenge. I just want to end with the fact that 
there's an expression called from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And it's interesting, every language has it. The Japanese say from rice paddy to rice paddy in three generations, and the Dutch say from clogs to clogs in three generations, and on and on. And another way to think about it is the first generation makes it, the second generation takes it, and the third generation loses it. Because unless you're ever vigilant in teaching your children about how to preserve capital and not to waste it and to think about it properly, you're at risk of dissipating whatever the great success you've been able to achieve is. Michael, thank you so much for all of this insight today. And we really look forward to talking with you again and got to dive even deeper into your new book. Thanks so much. It was uh, lots of fun. Michael, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, the lesson in the book that I really find people resonating with the most is this issue around children. And one of our prospects came one day because he was about to make a fortune of money on an investment and was trying to become a member and telling us his story. And he was going to make this huge fortune. And I said to him, I'm just curious, did you give your kids any part of this investment so that if they owned a part of it, it would avoid the estate tax? And he said, no, I'm not giving my kids anything. And I thought, oh, here comes another tough love story. So many first-generation entrepreneurs started in such modest and difficult and challenging circumstances that they're convinced that their success came from the triumph over those circumstances. And when their kids get to be 20 or 21 or 22, they want to reproduce those tough, difficult circumstances so that the kids can have the same kind of success, except they forget that the kids grew up in a totally different environment. Their parents were already successful. And so trying to reproduce that tough situation is like pulling the carpet out from underneath them just when they need your help the most and thinking, here comes another tough love story. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not going to give my kids anything, but I want to invest everything in them. And that was like an amazing, incredible insight because it changed the dialogue If you're lucky enough to be successful enough to have something to give to your children of a financial nature, and by the way, even if it's not financial, you might be giving them intellectual capital or social capital or human capital. We take all four and make the acronym FISH, Financial Investment Social and Human. Patricia Saputo, a member of ours in Montreal, uses that acronym. If you're lucky enough to have any of those types of assets, and they're all important, then invest in your kids and have the conversation about transfer of whatever you're going to leave them, not as a gift, but as an investment. Hold them to a return. Have them tell you how their career will be enhanced or their community or their family or their intellectual knowledge, what they're going to do for people in need. And when you look at it through this lens of, fish for financial, intellectual, social, and human. And you say, I don't care whether you create great wealth or great good, but if I'm going to give you this money, it has to have a return. You have to be responsible for it. That changes the conversation. And I think that's the great takeaway for me. Our guest today has been Michael Sonnenfeld. You can learn more about Michael as well as find links to his website and new book, Think Bigger, and 39 Other Winning Strategies from Successful Entrepreneurs in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. 
This episode has been sponsored by Align for Business. That's Align, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.